I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, refiners. I was so sorry to have to stop the fun last time. Let's get right back to it. You remember Milchik had arrived with the MDE, the music dance experience, as a celebration of Helly reaching 75% in her file. She hadn't completely hit 75%, but she was close enough for Milchik to declare it party time. Dylan, you remember, is not on board with the whole party thing. He's still thinking about meeting his Audi's son. The lights in MDR are flashing, the music is pumping, and it's time to pick back up where we left off in the file called Defiant Jazz. (music) Jessica Lee Gagne called on her music video background for the best way to shoot these scenes. She knew exactly how to capture the action. Stiller said they followed Trammell through his passes from several different angles. Ben said the dailies of this scene are great. You can see Tillman making his moves to Helly, then to Mark, then to Irving, and finally coming up behind Dylan, trying to get him to join in. Little does Milchik know just what a profound impact meeting his son has had on any Dylan. As Milchik slides around a laughing Mark, Mark notices something in the pocket of his suit pants. We get a close-up of any Mark pulling out Grainer's key card. This is the first time he's been aware he's carrying the card. Mark immediately jams it back into his pocket, hiding it as Milchik moves over by Irv. After a pass around a smiling but stiff Irving, Milchik makes his way over to Dylan. There's a bit of an addition to the soundtrack here. The music naturally gets a little crazier, but the sound designers have also added an ominous bit of bass in the background. Then a high-pitched sound like rushing wind comes in from behind. Have you ever gotten so mad your face flushes and you hear a rushing kind of wind noise? This is the same effect. The sound design crew is letting us hear what's happening in Dylan's head as the music gets crazier and crazier. Milchik, the object of Dylan's anger, is seemingly taunting him, getting in close as Dylan continues to refine. Maybe Seth just wants to get old Dylan happy and dancing, but this seems almost aggressive. Screeches are then added in under the music. A long shot reveals Milchik dancing wildly around Dylan as the lights become a coppery red over the entire floor. They're reminiscent of the lights we saw during Helly's broken window alarm. There's a reaction shot to Irv, then to Helly. They both seem to sense Dylan's discomfort. Milchik is gyrating all around Dylan. The scene is building to crescendo. We get a glimpse into Dylan's mind's eye. There are quick cuts from the spinning record back to Dylan, then to his son saying, Daddy. The images keep cycling over and over, building in intensity. Milchik is directly behind him when Dylan snaps. Zack Cherry explodes up out of his chair. 
We get a POV shot looking into Dylan's face as he pushes Milchik across the room. He's practically feral. Milchik, who is taller and more athletic than Dylan, is helpless in the face of Dylan's rage. They plow through the MDE cart, dumping it and scattering parts everywhere. Dylan keeps saying, what is his name? Tell me his name. Milchik goes down with Dylan pouncing on him. Dylan ducks his head and Milchik suddenly screams. He's biting me! Dylan has chomped down on Milchik's bicep and he's not letting go. <laughs> Irv and Mark rush he's over trying to pull me. Dylan off Milchik. Helly hits the lights and they return to normal. She then rushes over into the fray. Ben Stiller said Patricia Arquette had the best quote about this scene. She said, I guess a finger trap is just a finger trap once you've met your son. Dylan and Milchik are still on the floor. These are men battling, and it's pretty intense, but the methods employed are kind of schoolyard. Aside from Mike Tyson, biting your opponent in a fight is usually reserved for elementary school playgrounds. Similarly, when Milchik surveys the blood on his sweater, he utters this somewhat juvenile observation. He broke the skin. Dr. Herb speaks up. He needs a full tetanus toxoid panel. Which is... Kind of correct. It's not a panel, but the tetanus shot is more correctly called the tetanus toxoid vaccine. There is also a tetanus toxoid antibody panel, which can be run about three weeks after the shot is given to determine if the antibodies are active in the patient's bloodstream. The recommended course of treatment after being bitten by another human, especially if the bite contacts blood, is a tetanus booster. This is something Mr. Milchick might want to look into. He's also going to want to get a stain stick going on that turtleneck or he's never going to get the blood out. Milchick comes up from the floor hot and threatening. You've done it now, Dylan. I'm reporting this to Miss Cobell. Dylan is in no mood to be cowed, especially by the likes of Seth Milchick. Yeah, you want to go see her together? Oops. Milchick seems to have forgotten. He admitted to Dylan he ran last night's OTC without Cobell's permission. She may have grudgingly given him kudos when he ran the 266 on Irv without permission, but I don't think she's going to be quite as understanding about an OTC. Milchik is shut down. It only takes him a second to realize Dylan's not bluffing. Seth heads over to clean up what's left of the shattered MDE cart. Dylan stares him down the whole way. As Milchik is stomping out of the room, he turns like he's just remembered something. We get a reverse angle shot of the four Macrodats rallied around Dylan. They're holding him back, but you can tell they understand the enemy here is Milchik. Just in case you weren't sure, Milchik practically growls. The music dance experience is officially canceled. Milchik inserts his keycard in the new door and pulls it out as angrily as possible. You can tell he'd really like to slam the door. As soon as Milchik is gone... What is wrong with you? Any confidences Dylan might have been maintaining are out the window now. They can wake us up. What? On the outside, it's called the overtime contingency. Mark and Irv look confused. Mark asks again, what are you talking about? Dylan says last night after he went up the elevator, he woke up outside. In my house with Milchik. All Irv and Mark seemingly can say is what? Hell, he can't even speak. Zach Cherry utters this next line with a delivery that gives me chills every time. I saw my son. Wow. 
Time to move this conversation to the storeroom. And then he hugged me. Dylan is standing in the corner of the storeroom. It's about the same spot where we saw Mark when he was hiding the staff pictures. Dylan's head is firmly jammed between a stack of red copy paper on one side and a stack of blue on the other. Those 30 seconds last night have made an indelible impact. He was so happy to see me. Then Milchuk pulled him off and was over. The Macrodats have all convened in the storeroom. The reverse angle reveals a lot of weird stuff they have stored in there. There are two shelves devoted entirely to desk lamps. They have four each of two different designs, plus there's one long fluorescent tube job up on the top shelf. It looks like Heli is standing in front of an entire column of printers, and they don't seem to print all that much in MDR. Dylan says the whole thing happened so fast, he's just trying to remember more. Mark says it's crazy. Dylan says it's not fair. Now I'm just supposed to have that in my head every day here. I never get to see him again. Irv tries to deliver the company line. He says that's not Dylan's son. It's his Audi's son. That's bullshit. He's my son, too. Helly's wheels are turning. She says, this is good. They can use it. If they can wake us up on the outside, what's to stop us from doing it to ourselves? I appreciate her enthusiasm, but I'd say a lot of things could stop them. Helly's making some big jumps. She says, whatever it is, they can commandeer it, take it over. Then... We can all see the outside, find out who we are. Irv, the voice of reason, tells her it's perverse. Innies are innies. It's the lumen natural order of things. Besides... Those controls she wants to commandeer. There's surely somewhere we can't access. As they're talking, Mark is reaching into his pants pocket. He pulls out the magical black key card, which happened to just show up in his pants during the MDE. Like the security office? When he sees what Mark is holding, Dylan comes down from his perch. Greener's key card? Mark tells them he just happened to find it in his pocket during the MDE. He must have had it with him when he came in today. Why does your Audi have the keycard of our head of security? Well, that's a good question. She should watch the cold open. Mark, of course, doesn't know. He didn't dress himself this morning. He'd have to talk to his Audi, but he's sleeping until after five. So maybe we'd better do whatever damage we can with this thing before then. Helly learned her lesson. She's not looking a gift milchick in the mouth. I think it's time for a field trip. Dylan brings up a possible flaw in the plan. Isn't the security office where all the security guards work? Amazing, yeah. When he said this, I was thinking, aside from Judd, I don't know that I've ever seen another security guard anywhere in the building, let alone on the severed floor. Helly seems to have noticed the same thing. Who's to say there are security guards? I've only ever seen Grainer. Dylan asks, what about Milchik? He can't be everywhere at once. Well, if he was a clone, he could be, but this whole clone Milchik theory has really fallen apart. Also, he bled when he was bitten, so that shuts down the robot Milchik theory. If we've learned anything from the Terminator movies, humanoid robots do not bleed. Irv starts to sputter indignantly. He might as well be trying to stop a freight train. I don't know where the office is. Mark says Petey saw it. During a fire alarm last year, he showed me. Lumen seems to have a healthy fear of fire on the severed floor. Helly used a fire extinguisher to break out that window. The severed barrier actually leads to a fire escape. Now we hear they've responded to fire alarms. Mark doesn't say it was a drill. He said it was an alarm. I would guess they are also pumping some oxygen into the severed floor, which could add to the fire risk. We will learn in just a bit there are 
12 floors above the severed floor. The severed elevators pass by all of them, but the unsevered elevators seem to have access to each of these other floors. There has to be some kind of air exchange happening, especially to the lower floors or they'd suffocate down there. I'll have more on the elevator control panel when we get to the security office. Right now, we need to get back to hatching a plan. We can do this. The storage closet doors burst open with the same badass macrodat swagger we saw in hide-and-seek. We even get a little more slow-mo just at the beginning. Mark tells Dylan if Milchik shows up... Stole my gun. Dylan seems more than ready for Milchik to show up. He may have a few more anger issues to work through. Irv is putting on his coat. It looks like Mark, Helly, and Irv will be making the run to security. Doesn't it seem odd for Irv to be going along with this plan? Maybe only in hindsight because I know what's going to happen. Mark pulls out the black key card to try for the first time. I don't want to be a gloomy Gus, but why hasn't anyone mentioned the possibility this card is a fake? It could be another spicy candy loyalty trap for all they know. Hopefully this works. Well, yeah, and doesn't immediately cause Grainer to swoop in on you. Green light, door opens, looks like they're out. A quick question as they emerge from MDR. Doesn't it seem like the MDR door is sometimes in an alcove, other times it's right at the hallway? Hey, where's Irv going? I'm sorry, Mark. Where are you going? I have to make sure Bert's okay. Okay, this explains Irv's willingness to go along with the plan. Mark calls after him, but Irv is claiming he can't hear. I can't hear you. I'll be back. Mark is bummed, but he and Helly decide to continue on with the plan. So... How do you make stark white hallways interesting? Check out these options from director Ben Stiller and cinematographer Jessica Lee Gagne. Put the camera anywhere but at eye level. Up angles, down angles, weird positioning, leading shots, follow shots, fixed shots, waiting for action to come into the frame. Do a wipe into white, then slide out of it in an entirely different hallway. Kanye said it was always a challenge to come up with something unique in the way of lighting and camera angles because she wanted to do something new every time they were in the halls. Mark and Yellow Heli come around a corner. Mark says, this is it. The reverse angle reveals a dead end. The door Mark's approaching does not have a label next to it. It's the only unlabeled door we've ever seen on the severed floor. Emboldened by his earlier success with the MDR door, Mark whips out the black key card. He hesitates, looks around at Heli, then gives it a try. Green light, a buzz, and the satisfying mechanical clank of the door unlocking. Mark takes a deep breath as he reaches for the door handle. He is surely picturing a room filled with burly security guys. We cut to a reverse angle from inside the office. Mark's peering around the door, Heli following. The security office is empty. Fucking weird. To their right is a bank of security monitors. Fourteen seem to be devoted to camera displays. Two in the lower middle look like controls. It would appear security personnel have the option to change the feeds going into each of the monitors, at least if there were any security personnel. Could Doug Grainer have really been a department of one? Mark and Helly go in opposite directions. He walks to the bank of monitors. She crosses into a room filled with colored lights. We get a reverse angle as she enters. Every wall is a control panel, but they look 
old. They have what I'd call a Cold War feel. A lot of shotgun blued steel with cutouts for lights and controls. It does look like there are a couple of more modern computer monitors low and to each side of the older looking control panels. Heli walks right in and we get close-ups of each subsection of the panel. It's divided into departments and we can see the first name, last initial of each individual department member. The security office is stuffed with as many reveals as Kobel's shrine to Kier. As Heli takes a long look at each panel, it's possible to pull a lot of information from freeze frames. There are eight different departments listed. CE, MDR, TA, WNA, D&R, EQP, CL, and WN. Optics and Design does not seem to be on the list unless they go by some other abbreviation. I also could not find a reference to either Bert G. or Felicia anywhere in the individual names. There are 84 total names listed on the panels. CE, DNR, and EQP all have 14 people per department. WNA is next largest with 12 people. TA has 10. WN is made up of 8 and CL has six people. If you figure eight people in O&D, that makes MDR the smallest department on the severed floor, or at least the part of the floor controlled by this security office. I found some fun stuff going through the individual names. Many of these names are also listed on Irv's sheet of severed employees, which we see later in the season. Audi Irv has found full last names for many of these people. Remember during Petey's funeral how we found names of crew members listed as participating in the service? Well, they've done some more crew shoutouts here. A lot more. By using the full names from Irv's list, I was able to identify 33 people on this list of severed employees who are also crew members on Severance. I'm not going to list all 33 here, but I will read the list at the end of the episode in case you're interested. Helly scans over the names of the severed employees until her eyes fall on the MDR section. Look, that's us. She gets back to the point of the mission, find info on the overtime contingency. Helly finds a book stuck up on a high shelf entitled Security Office Protocols Quick Start Guide. This is a compendium of security procedures, the 23rd edition. It is pretty hilariously attached to the control panel, the same way they used to connect phone books and phone booths with a heavy wire passed through the spine. Any refiners remember phone books and phone booths? Those of you who haven't been reset in a while might remember them. As Heli starts to flip through the quick start guide, Mark notices a panel on one of the computer screens marked elevator monitor. It contains information about four elevators serving the severed floor. Two of them are identified as non-severed, the other two are severed. Only one of the severed elevators is even in service, the other is marked as inactive. One of the non-severed elevators has started to move. Shit. What? The keycard used to open this elevator identifies the passenger as Cobell. Freezing on the elevator panel yields some interesting info. It looks like the top level of the shaft for all four elevators is the 13th floor, putting them 12 floors or about 120 feet above the severed floor. 
Interestingly, what would be the ground floor, or at least the floor emptying out into the Lumen building, is identified as 13. They then count down from there. As Cobell's elevator begins to descend, we can see short-form labels for each of the floors she passes. 12 is identified as machine, so probably the lift motors for the elevators and maybe even some air exchangers. Next going down is executive suite. Below that is senior suite. There are two levels of conference rooms. The seventh level is marked IT. Below that is ACQ, so possibly acquisitions. Level five is data P, so maybe data processing. Four is identified as NetSys. We can't see three or two, and then one would be the severed floor where we are now. The unsevered elevators seem to have access to all of the intermediary floors. The severed elevators show padlocks by most floors. The two conference room levels seem to be accessible to the severed elevator. Not sure how you'd stop at one of those, but they do seem to be an option. Mark can clearly see the giant word Cobell reversed out of red in the descending elevator car. Shit. What? Even though it's pretty obvious what's happening, he runs over to the wall of monitors for visual confirmation. It's Cobell. Sure enough, there's Cobell standing in one of the unsevered elevators as she rides down to the office. She won't come here. Mark wishes Helly knew this for sure. Helly has been flipping through the quick start guide. The first operation she opens on is the Elephant Access Circuit, a subsystem activation routine. It has been speculated this routine somehow accesses all past memories, even those that may have been wiped. The rationale? Elephants are known for their long memories, so it's probably why they named it that. She flips by the branch transfer system, identified as a subsystem filter. If you've been reset, the guess is this filter would be used to cleanly transfer you to another branch. Finally, in the back of the book, she locates the quick start for the overtime contingency protocol. The subhead says, two users required. Let's get the fuck out of here. Kelly yanks the OTC page out of the quick start guide and puts the guide back up on the shelf. As those feisty macrodats exit the security office, we cut to Cobell heading to her office, and we have a cut of Herb, also heading through the halls to O&D. Sometimes O&D seems to be miles away. Other times, it's just down the hall. This time, it's a long way. Herb is walking and combing his mustache. He wants to look his best for the gang at O&D, don't you know? Harmony turns into her office only to encounter Natalie already there at the door. This is different than the ambush meeting from the other day. She's waiting in the hall for Cobell. Cobell starts to tell her this isn't a good time. I have the board here. Natalie gets right to the heart of the matter. Doug Grainer is dead. Oh, yes, he is. Very dead. I saw the whole thing. <laughs> Harmony freezes. What? She knows where he was headed last night. She's possibly the only one who knows exactly what he was up to. Natalie tells her the board finds this deeply troubling. The board wants to know if you knew he was missing. Well, not missing so much, but she does know he was headed to Gans College on a fact-finding mission. The board is also wondering if Cobell has spoken to the police. They don't say whether this would be a good thing or a bad thing. Whoever killed Mr. Grainer is probably the same person who reintegrated Peter Kilmer. This is a telling leap on Harmony's part. Natalie said he was dead. 
Natalie never said he was murdered. It could have been a car accident. Those are pretty common around Lumen, it sounds like. Or a heart attack. Maybe he fell off a ladder changing a light bulb. There are a lot of ways to die besides being killed. Harmony has once again angered the board with her talk of reintegration. We can hear a scolding tone through Nat's headset. She starts to remind Harmony about the board's position on reintegration. Reintegration happened, and I have the data to prove it. Natalie is a good six to eight inches taller than Cobell, but Cobell is the aggressor here. She moves up close, so her mouth is right by the mouthpiece of Natalie's headset. It's an aggressive move, getting right in Nat's personal space. Cobell is now addressing the board directly through Natalie's mic. I would be happy to share my findings in person without intermediaries. Patricia Arquette holds eye contact and stares her down. Natalie is surprised by what she hears on the other end of the line. The board agrees. Hmm, good. Maybe now they can stop with this fairy tale about the irreversible procedure. Natalie says the board will be prepared to meet with Harmony at the Egan Family Gala next week. Hmm, so the board can meet in person. This is new information. Details to come. Throughout this exchange, Cobell has stayed right in Natalie's face. Nat is looking a bit freaked. After telling Harmony the board is up for a meeting, Cobell just stares silently for several seconds. Finally, she says, I look forward to receiving them. The staring continues until Cobell decides she's done with this lackey messenger for the board. She gives Natalie a bit of a sneer and walks past her, going on into the office. Natalie remains in the hall, looking a bit stunned. I'd say some of her response is not acting. Sidney Cole Alexander is doing a fantastic job giving Natalie this smug, I'm always a step ahead of you attitude. Even so, Patricia Arquette can be a formidable presence. To have her up in your grill like that, even if you know she's only acting, it's got to be intimidating. Reintegration happened. And I have the data to prove it. We cut to a POV shot moving through the halls. We can hear the footfalls of Irv. Music, something with an island feel, is coming from up ahead. The reverse shot reveals Irv's face eagerly anticipating a chance to see Bert. Cutting back to the POV, the first thing we see in the O&D space is a banner saying, Goodbye, Bert in the standard Euro-style font they use all over the severed floor with, of course, a Lumen logo on the banner. Both Ben Stiller and Dan Erickson have cited the heavy influence the American TV docu-comedy The Office has had on the development of Severance. The first thing I thought of when I saw this banner was Dwight's banner for Kelly saying, It is your birthday. At least Bert got an exclamation point instead of a period. I do find it hilarious his goodbye banner includes a Lumen logo. Oh, hey, Melon Bar. Ooh, sweet, Melon Bar. The O&D folks have a big spread of melon and melon accessories laid out all over the O&D work tables. There's punch, and everyone is chattering excitedly. Irv is left standing in the doorway, not sure what to make of this situation. We hear Dylan's voice taking us into a transition. So no one is in there? That's lax as fuck. 
We're back in the MDR storeroom. Intrepid adventurers Helly and Mark have returned with news of the empty security office. Well, maybe it's enough that we think we're constantly being watched. Sure it is. It's kept them in check until now. Helly is studying the sheet she nabbed from the quick start manual. Mark asks if it's making any sense. There's a bunch of steps, but it's actually pretty straightforward. She runs through the steps. Dylan grabs the sheet from her and glances through the direction. Trackball type, switch type, flip type, hold. Boom. Sure, no sweat. Helly and Mark look at him like he's an alien. What? I'm smart. I have three times as many finger traps as you guys. The moral? Don't judge a book by its cover. He might be sticky head, but he's also an intelligent and serious refining force who knows his way around the MDR trackball. I'm smart. Mark realizes to do this, one of them has to stay behind in order to operate the switch. Dylan says he's already been out even if it only was for 30 seconds or so. He says he should be the one to stay after work and operate the controls. Very noble of you, but I think it's designed as a two-man operation. Uh, this could never deter Dylan. Come on, this is Dylan. Great, I have the strength of two men. Sure he does. This is a guy whose Audi obviously does muscle shows. Quick shot from behind Dylan's head. He's splitting the room in two, Helly on one side, Mark on the other. It's not about strength. No, it's about wingspan. The two lever switches which engage the OTC are on either side of the security office door. They are specifically positioned to discourage one person from doing this operation. I can do it. The strength of two men aside, if they really wanted to get the right guy for this job, it would be Irv. According to Superstar Bios, Zach Cherry is 5'8". Not short, but not the lanky figure of Irv. Reach is directly impacted by height. The taller you are, the wider your wingspan. John Turturro is 6'1". Irv's going to have a good 5 or 6 inches on Dylan when it comes to reach. The bigger question might be, can Irv be trusted to follow through? Look at him now, running off to visit O&D. I can't hear you. I'll be back. Oh, and speaking of O&D, we cut back to the O&D party, where Irv is still standing in the doorway looking stunned. Milchik, who hasn't been making any friends over at MDR, is heading up the festivities here at O&D. Ladies and gentlemen, how about a round of applause for the man of the hour, huh? He's wheeling a standard deaf TV on a stand to the front of the main O&D room. Bert, not looking too thrilled about this whole situation, is following him. Is this what Milchik was hinting at this morning? When he said they were going to do something special for Bert, is this the something else he was hinting at? And what does this do to the final preparation they were talking about? The O&D folks start a Burt chant. Hey, there's Rachel Addington as Elizabeth, who we met last episode. She's right down front. Milchik turns on the retro-looking video player, then addresses the room. Greetings, designers. And one refiner. Everyone turns to see Irv in the doorway. Shouldn't he be safely tucked in back at MDR? We'll have to get those doors looked at. Milchik decides to not let Irv derail the party. He tells Bert this is for him and hits play on the big silver remote he's holding. Audi Bird appears on the screen wearing a nicely layered blue turtleneck under a blue plaid shirt and a royal blue sweater over the top of everything. 
Bert on the screen says, hello. This is kind of strange, but a lot of things about this job are. He says he doesn't know any of them, but the guy standing there with them sure does. He's worked with you for nearly seven years, and I hope they've been good years. Well, this fills in some of our Irving Burt timeline. It's been at least seven years since Burt either started or was last reset. This means if Irving was a part of O&D, then got reset three years ago, any Burt would be aware of what happened to Irv. The whole idea of having the Audis address the innies like this is a bit cringy. He doesn't know who they are, what they do. Audi Burt might as well be some stranger they grabbed off the street. He does say even though he has no idea what they're doing, he feels it when he gets home. I come home feeling tired but fulfilled. I feel satisfied. 3D printing watering cans will do that to you, I guess. When Audi Burt says this is his last day with them, Irv steps closer. I'm certain you will remain with me in spirit in some deep yet completely unaccessible corner of my mind. This speech, though devastating for Irv and pretty cringy for the other O&D folks, is really pretty funny for us as the viewer. The impression you've left on me is indelible, though I'm unaware of it on a conscious level, and I will never forget any of you. Even though sitting here right now, I have no recollection of actually ever meeting you, no idea of your names, uh, any of your physical characteristics, or even how many of you there are. Anyway, the final nail in the cringe coffin comes when Audi Burt says, I see you to any Burt, but points in the opposite direction of where any Burt is actually standing. Congratulations. <laughs> Good job, buddy. Audi Burt blows a noisemaker, checks his watch, and the screen goes to snow. This is so sad, yet the designers happily applaud. Irv is standing to the back of the group looking devastated. The acting horsepower they've assembled with this severance cast is a little like tooling around town in a souped-up high-powered station wagon. At a casual glance, it's just a station wagon. Solid, trustworthy, get you where you want to go. But then you gun it and realize the power you've got under the hood. Ladies and gentlemen, for a taste of that power, here's John Turturro. You're all just going to stand here and let him die? I mean, what? Are we being punished for defying the guidance of the founder? Bert's Audi is retiring. It'll happen to you too someday. You smug motherfucker. You're not severed. You walk out of here with your memories. You carry them home with you every night. No one can rip them away from you. Snuff them out. Like they never existed. Like you never existed. That's enough. Whoa. Bert steps in. He tells Milchik it would be so wonderful to have Irv here. Bert promises Irv will quiet down. And when we're talking performance horsepower, don't forget... We've also got a Tramel Tillman under the hood. You can stay for Bert's party and support his transition. But only if you behave in a manner that brings no shame upon yourself, the founder, or his progeny. I don't know what's gotten into you people today. 
Oh, come on, Seth. You've got a little bit of an idea. The bandage we see there on your upper arm is a direct result of you initiating a sloppy OTC with Dylan last night. And have you looked into a tetanus shot? The full tetanus toxoid panel. Herb swallows hard. No matter how defiant his earlier speech, he understands how things work here on the severed floor. Yes, Mr. Milchak. Look at John T.'s face. The light of discipleship has been thoroughly snuffed out of Irv's eyes. What's left is cold and hard. Now, that's all say goodbye to Bird. Either they had another MDE cart, or Seth has been working most of the day repairing the one he and Dylan trashed. He produces another 45 marked Any Retirement Song Number 19. Just to keep us off balance, this one has the large hole most commonly associated with 45 RPM singles. Bert selected this particular cut seemingly from a menu of possible retirement songs. I'm guessing there must be at least 18 others. A goodbye montage begins. O&D workers shake Bert's hand, then Herb shakes Bert's hand. This is it. He goes up tonight and never returns. Milchik gives Herb a look. Herb knows it's time to head back to MDR. This whole scene is being underscored by a commercial jingle from Canadian singer Paul Anka. Will you remember the times of your life? Okay, so it really was a song eventually. It started out as a commercial jingle for film and camera manufacturer Kodak. The tune was first heard across the United States, sung by Anka in a commercial during the summer of 1975. He decided it's a pretty good song. Music written by Roger Nichols with lyrics by Bill Lane. Anka recorded a full version of the song in late 1975 and released it as a single. Good morning, Time has slipped away And suddenly it's hard to find The memories you left behind Remember, do you remember The laughter There's also an album of the same name. The single went to number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 in February of 1976. It was Anka's 12th and final Billboard Top 10 hit. Because of the theme, it's a cut that comes around periodically. AMC used it in a series of retrospective Mad Men promos in 2015, and it was featured in a Downey commercial in 2021. Irv is following Milchik through the halls on his way back to MDR. Seth glances over his shoulder periodically. After the Dylan attack this morning, he's not taking any chances with these MDR folks, especially when they're upset. You smug motherfucker. As Seth opens the new electronic door, we see the other three refiners seated around the diamond desk. All is business as usual here at MDR. We haven't been out in the hall stealing information from the security office. Seth opens the door, lets her in, and hightails it out of there. He knows he's not a favorite of MDR right now. Irv walks into the space with the same cold-eyed look on his face we saw after his speech at O&D. This is no longer Irv, the disciple of Kier. 
This Irv just had his heart ripped out of his chest and stomped on in the middle of O&D. He's done with Kier, done with Lumen. Let's burn this place to the ground. Oh yeah, it's on now. We cut to a close-up of a lowball glass. Amber liquid is being poured into it. There's a longer shot of Mark draining the glass. It looks like this is far from his first. Cut to a close-up of Mark scrolling through his phone looking for news about Grainer's death. He's scanning the Cure Chronicle mobile app using Gans College as a search term. Checking headlines, the new sculpture at Gans is, quote, not pornographic, according to the administration. Coyote sightings at Gans are on the rise to the point of causing alarm. There's even a graph showing the increase. The college president is going into some kind of a charity dunk tank. The school will no longer be selling Friday high day shirts because they've been deemed inappropriate. New scholarships are being awarded to students in both psychology and pharmacology. Hmm, this one says several large donations made the scholarships possible. Wonder if any of those large donations might have come from Lumen. Thankfully, Mark doesn't find anything about the brutal murder of a Lumen security chief. The long shot reveals Mark sitting at his dining room table with a bottle and a glass. But the glass seems to be a formality. Mark also has a bag of something sitting there we haven't talked about yet. Every time I say something is cringeworthy, I think I should mention it, but then I don't. I believe that is a bag of Cringies brand fried potato snacks. Cringies have been around throughout the series and seem to be a favorite of Cure residents. Devin was eating them in the sunroom the morning after the no-dinner dinner party in the very first episode. She had a two-toned blue bag. Cringies could also be seen in the Midday Star convenience store where Petey died. According to a tweet from Jen Tullock, who plays Devin, the tagline for Cringies is, Awkwardly delicious. There's a knock. Mark trudges to the door. He is pretty wasted. Uh-oh, it's Alexa. Hey. Hey. That was not a good hey, but Mark's too drunk to pick up on it. She's still pretty mad. Finding wasted Mark probably isn't helping anything. My phone. Speaking of cringies, we can't escape the cringe with these two. After the awful end to First Date Part 2, Alexa left without her phone. I'd change my number and just let it go. A quick question. If he has her phone, how did he call her to tell her he has her phone? Eh, maybe Devin had her home number. We'll go with that. Mark invites her in, even though he's in no shape to be entertaining. Mark's babbling as he retrieves the phone. She politely asks if he's okay. Yeah, a little tired. Also pretty drunk. Alexa just wants to get out of there. Okay, I'm gonna go. Mark tries to pull her back. This is bad. Alexa says she doesn't think Mark is ready for this. He's a mess. Mark, of course, veers into Gemma territory. He starts apologizing for talking about her. He's so drunk. Just please make it stop. He takes out a picture of Gemma and tears it up in front of Alexa. Gone. Alexa is mortified. She exits without a word. This is creepy and destructive, and I don't blame her a bit for getting out of there. Mark is calling after her. Uh, okay. 
Wow. Now he says, they'll talk all about Gemma. She was great. She was... Bye, Mark. Alexa is gone, and I'm betting this is the last we ever see of her. Really? <laughs> oh, my. Oh. Mark is standing in the road, remembering. He's a wreck. He walks back into the house and retrieves the squares of the picture he just tore up. Mark is making destruction a habit. Remember how he shredded Petey's map? It was the same scenario. He was trying to make some big dramatic point with Helly, but he really didn't mean it and regretted it immediately after. Mark grabs the scotch tape. I'll be seeing you from Billie Holiday begins to play. Mixed in with the song are some of Mark's memories of Gemma. And when she sneezed, she always sneezed twice. These thoughts are almost like a mantra. My wife liked other people's dogs. The picture is starting to come together. My wife thought cardigans looked ridiculous. Mark then says, I loved all these things about her. Equally. Hey, hold on a minute. Where have we heard someone tell us to appreciate things? Please try to enjoy each fact equally and not show preference for any over the others. Earth-shaking reveal coming, refiners. Imagine this final scene coming at you in March of 2022 when Mark finally moves his hand away from the reconstructed picture we see a smiling Ms. Casey in a hat. Minds blown coast to coast and around the world. For the first time, we have confirmation Ms. Casey is the two years dead Gemma Scout. Once you picked yourselves up off the floor, refiners, you can shut down your workstations. This file is at 100%. The next time we gather, we'll be finding out just what's for dinner. Now, feel free to exit via the elevator, staggering your exits, of course, but if you'd like to stick around for a few minutes, I'll read the names of the people listed as severed who Irv found last names for and who also happen to be real-life members of the Severance crew. I found 33 of these folks. In no particular order, and apologies for any mispronunciation, they are Roxanne Kratt, set decoration buyer, Eric Galupo, video playback supervisor, Kathleen Feligara, construction medic, Sam Ellison, camera operator, Julia Brown, costumer, Alice B., lead tailor, Amy Baker, health and safety manager, Kansas Ballesteros, camera loader, Erica Rydell, assistant to Patricia Arquette. Ian Burley, location assistant. Johnny Irby's Chan, key grip. Nick Francone, additional production designer. Michael Guthrie, B, first assistant camera. Arizona Newsom, art department. Colleen Dolan, on set property master. James McFadden, rigging gaffer. Christopher Lewis, art production assistant. Kurt Lenig, gaffer. Grace Kwan, location manager. Dean Neistat, second unit director. Tricia Barsamian, assistant costume designer. Amanda Gallus, health and safety supervisor. Brian Dembinski, 
sound mixer. Alec Hansen, on set dresser. Ernie Carpelli's location scout. Luke Iasiafano, utility sound mixer. Marty Kirchhoff, key carpenter. Timothy Paustian, transportation captain. Denise O'Connor, prop shopper. And yes, Denise also appeared in Petey's funeral program. The other two who appeared in the funeral program didn't have last names on Irv's sheet. Catherine Miller, property master. Tyler Swanick, second assistant camera, the blue camera. Ayanya Ace Huggins, lead person. And Jonathan Azuli, first assistant accountant. And that really is it for this episode. Go on, refiners, get out of here. Go spend some time as an Audi. Meet your family. I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.